They were high school sweethearts that got married and had two kids. It's the Brunigs. In the swamp of DC, they tweet all day, but that's okay. They're the Brunigs. She is a journalist. He is a wonk. Wonk, wonk, wonk. They talk about the news or whatever they want. In the fight for justice, they're on your side. You can't deny it's the Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to our low-effort, low-quality podcast. This is Liz Brunig, and that's all. It's just Liz Brunig. You guys have been asking for a solo cast for a while, uh, and so I'm doing one. And so I'm not very good at this kind of thing. Um, more of a riff, riff person, uh, or a, or a conversationalist. Matt's really more of the um, original thinker in the duo i i believe uh and he's much better at uh uh constructing what are essentially big arguments that he has against no one uh, i'm not as good at that so this is more of, a, of an exploratory episode always stretching the form here on the brewcast uh so it's coming up on halloween i wanted to give you a spooky episode uh so this episode is about vampires and class I think people, by and large, understand themselves and their worlds by telling stories. Now, there are obvious exceptions to this. Matt doesn't really seem to understand the world in a narrative way, for instance. Sometimes when I repeat back to him a certain narrative arc I've noticed in his life or mine, it comes as a surprise to him. It probably is the case that he sees life more clearly than I do because he doesn't really have this narrativizing tendency, but I do have it, and it is what it is. For that reason, I do really recommend, like, reading the Western canon. Uh, it helps to know the stories that people draw upon to create the narratives they tell themselves and other people about their world. Anyway, this is about vampires and the stories that vampires can tell us about our world and the way in which vampires are used in stories that reflect anxieties and worries and tensions in our time. So there are a lot of reasons to be interested in vampires, you know, namely because they're cool and badass, but also because they reflect changing ideas about evil. So probably one of the key features of vampires is that they're evil, right? They're not like elves or dwarves or whatever mythical races that are imagined to live alongside human beings in like relative neutrality. So, you know, what makes them evil? You know, suffice to say, we could go into a discussion here about what evil is which is of great interest to me and is probably the question that motivates everything I do that's serious. So, you know, shitty, dumb tweets, not motivated by my interest in evil. But like most of the reporting and long form stuff I do is motivated by a deep curiosity about evil uh, and my conviction that figuring out evil is part of the you know, great moral quest entrusted to every human being upon birth. Anyway, vampires, back to vampires. The most obvious answer uh, is that anything that eats people is somewhat evil, though that doesn't track exactly because lions eat people and they're not evil. They're not morally evil anyway, though one might say getting eaten by a lion is an example of natural evil. The two are differentiated by intent, basically. 
Ebola, volcanoes, hurricanes. They don't maliciously intend to murder you. It just happens as a result of living in a particular kind of world. Meanwhile, somebody deciding to murk you and doing it, that's moral evil because it's done by choice. Vampires are kind of a curious example of moral evil because they do what they do to live, but they're also morally conscious and they decide to do it. This is with the notable exclusion of some vampires who decide not to drink blood and drink animal blood or whatever, which is a weak move authorially from my point of view. Like you're getting all of the fun of vampires, but you're not dealing with any of the tension or conflict of vampires. It's just like a, it's just a really crappy escape hatch uh, in narratively in, in my point of view. Anyway, the fact that vampires eat blood in particular is key in the story of why they're evil. So I'm going to lay some scripture on you. This is Leviticus 17. I will set my face against any Israelite or foreigner residing among them who eats blood, and I will cut them off from the people. For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Therefore, I say to the Israelites, none of you may eat blood, nor may any foreigner residing among you eat blood. So any civilization with Leviticus in its background is going to naturally place a severe taboo on the specific consumption of blood because this is understood to be the direct consumption of the creature's life itself and because it's a selfish usurpation of what ought to belong to God. So stealing stuff that ought to belong to God alone is, of course, the original sin, right? When you think about eating the fruit in Eden, People usurped knowledge of good and evil, which was heretofore reserved for God alone. And that's their sin, right? The thing that God says after the people, uh, Adam and Eve, eat the fruit is, well, now that they have knowledge of good and evil, they'll eat from the tree of eternal life, and then they'll be like me. Uh, they will have usurped godly powers for themselves uh, without having uh, godly perfection. So that's why it's such a big disaster, and they get kicked out of the garden and so forth. But the point here is that the usurpation of things reserved for God is like the primary sin. That's original sin. So vampires, in essence, recapitulate original sin all the time, maybe every day, or, or as often as they need to eat, which I guess like varies from lore to lore, but you take my point. They have a, a very uh, sort of a primal claim to evil, at least in the Judeo-Christian, and I don't usually use that term, but I'm using it here because Leviticus belongs to both traditions uh, at this point, uh, you know, at least in civilizations that kind of have that in their bloodstream, the vampiric act of eating the blood of human beings is very close to the core of, you know, sort of what evil is itself, uh, you know, what touches off the whole drama of the human relationship with God. And of course, vampires do a lot of evil shit on the periphery of being vampires, which we'll get to. But I would posit that like the core of what it is to be a vampire, not just like an immortal ghost or a reanimated corpse or whatever, is to drink blood. So, okay, you have this creature that by its very nature rehearses original sin and preys on humankind to survive, which means you have a creature that is evil both by choice and necessity. What does that look like on the ground? 
Now, the more medieval version of vampires involved a more obviously monstrous way of living and being. They were just like scary grave monsters, uh, demonic, no real evidence of complicated thoughts or inner lives. And this is partly due to the way that narrative changes uh, between the medieval era and the modern era. Uh, But, you know, I mean, the medievals did have uh, vampires in terms of, you know, creatures in their legendarium. They also had kind of vampire adjacent creatures, Naxer. Uh, That's like the first victim who died of a plague was often thought to be this monstrous thing that could come back from the dead and continue spreading uh, plague. So that's like a little bit, a little bit vampire uh, esque. Uh, and and there were other creatures, you know, the Nosferatu and such, which were also uh, vampire-y creatures. Um, uh, but you know, they weren't the vampires of modernity. Uh, it, that developed later. Uh, and those are the vampires we think of as having, you know, essentially human cognition. Uh, they're not just animalistic creatures driven by sort of malign magic uh, or or animalistic desire. They're, they're human-esque, right? They have inner lives. They have moral dramas and so forth. That's the kind of vampire I'm be focusing on here. And that's where the myth gets repurposed to tell a really interesting story, in my opinion, about class. So when you take the vampire mythos uh, seriously, that is, when you try to imagine what these creatures would actually be like, as opposed to imagining them as, you know, bestial monsters, one thing that comes quickly apparent is that it's kind of logistically difficult to be a vampire. You can't go out during the daytime. You don't eat food. You don't get any older. If people do figure out what you are, you're sort of easy to kill because you're vulnerable to daylight and stakes. So a vampire needs to have the identity of a person of whom little can be asked. In other words, they need to be somebody who's above reproach, somebody who's entitled to have odd, eccentric habits, and whose bizarre behaviors aren't subject to meaningful public inquiry. In other words, an aristocrat. Now, there are many, many ways in which vampires are, you know, quote-unquote natural aristocrats in the Aristotelian sense. They're immortal-ish, which gives them the ability to accrue all kinds of knowledge and skills that we mortals don't have. You know, I think in, in Greek thought, ancient Greek thought, uh, the, the thing that really made the gods the gods was that they were immortal. They could spend uh, many, many, many thousands of years accruing knowledge and skills uh, that human beings didn't have. And I think they were also imagined to be really big. Uh, but the real limitation... Uh, that that you know separated human beings from the gods was mortality, and so it goes with vampires. And we're cattle to vampires, right? Mankind is their natural prey, which means they're a notch above us on the food chain. And then you know, look at how you become a vampire. Commoners can be inducted into vampirism, but only in most iterations by a willful act on the vampire's part, typically a bite, typically on the neck which suggests a commingling of fluids, like a a marrying in, which would be the only way that a non-aristocrat could indeed join the aristocracy. It would have to be a willful act on behalf of an already existing aristocrat, and usually uh, through some kind of consummation like marriage. 
But there are also lots of ways in which vampires mirror the habits and structures of historical aristocracy. They are often solitary, as in the singular estates of the landed gentry. While the rest of us live in villages and huddled masses, they preside over us alone. Sometimes they even have a feudalesque relationship to other vampires. In Lost Boys, for example, the head vampire has dominion over lesser vampire vassals. Sometimes vampires even have a special relationship with their own land. In Dracula, for example, Dracula can only regenerate himself in literal Transylvanian soil. So if you've ever read the novel, when Dracula wants to travel from Transylvania to England, he has to pack himself in big boxes of Transylvanian dirt uh, and then unload them at Carfax Abbey, uh, which is then the place that he's able to actually get like restorative daytime slumber. And and this mirrors, of course, the sort of uh, mythic and, and spiritual relationship between traditional aristocrats and their land, right? This is their family land. It's kind of commingled with their blood in a certain respect. Yeah. And now consider how vampires live only on the lifeblood of other creatures. And that's the grand irony of it. These all-powerful, demigod-like creatures subsist entirely on the lives of others. Or as Marx put it in Capital, Capital is dead labor that, vampire-like, only lives by sucking living labor, and lives the more, the more labor it sucks. And there's this sense in which vampires prey sort of semi-sexually on their lessers. All that shit about vampires preferring the blood of virgins is really evocative of the right of prima nocta, a privilege that supposedly belonged to medieval aristocrats who could lay claim to the wedding nights of young maidens in their lands. If you've seen Braveheart, that's part of the drama that's going on there. Now, I don't know if this right actually did exist. Uh, if it did, it probably wasn't ever invoked. All the references to it come from later on in the historical record, not contemporaneous sources. Um, but it's certainly understood to sum up all that's excessive and cruel about aristocratic power. Ingalls even mentions it in Origin of the Family, Private Property, and the State. Uh, in one of his many uh, kind of oddball asides. If you haven't read that document, it's available for free uh, on the online. Uh, and I, I mean, I think that you would probably find it interesting. Ingalls had a really uh, kind of admirable set of interests. He was very fascinated by the position of women in society and the role of the family. Uh, I've always thought that, uh, you know, he should get more credit as the OG woke ally uh, but, you know, uh, highly recommend. So then there's the way, and, and we've touched on this a little bit already, but I, I think it rounds out the aristocracy discussion nicely in which vampires are both a force of nature and also moral agents. Uh, it's especially key in tracing how they mirror these traditional notions of aristocracy because for people who lived in aristocratic systems, those systems were both inevitable and entirely determined by human choice. They felt there was no escape from what seemed like an ancient and natural institution. In fact, those kinds of arguments that aristocracy was ancient and natural and somehow ingrained into the fabric of humankind were explicitly made in favor of aristocratic rule uh, uh, toward the uh, advent of liberalism. And yet the people who lived under aristocrats also knew that the abuses perpetrated against them were immoral 
and even believed in a lot of cases that they would be avenged in the eschaton. You can see this in Lollard writing. Uh, you can see it in quite a bit of medieval Christian writing from across Europe. And you can definitely see it reflected in, you know, Jacquerie's and uh, peasant rebellions in which aristocrats would be like uh, very brutally killed and, and their things uh, expropriated. Uh, what's interesting, I think, about this kind of mirror effect, this uh, parallel uh, between vampires and the aristocracy, is sometimes the parallel actually intersects, and this is all made explicit. Uh, a bunch of Anne Rice's vampires are aristocrats, for example, so like land-owning, plantation-having aristocrats. Dracula is an aristocrat. Carmilla is an aristocrat. Uh, these are two of the very oldest uh, modern vampire novels. In Vampire Hunter D, which I think was a series of Japanese novels and then comic books and then an anime, vampires actually constitute like a class and are explicitly referred to as nobles. But of course, the Japanese tend to be more frank about these things than we are. Now, it's not always the case that vampires are stand-ins for or commentaries upon aristocracy. People are always playing with the theme. In Twilight, for example, and here I want to point out that I've never read Twilight. Uh, like, I was well positioned to be a Twilight fan in terms of age and whatnot. I remember there was a big Twilight display in my school library. And I guess the endorsement from the Arlington Independent School District tipped me off that the books sucked because I didn't read them. Uh, a lot of my friends read them and they're always, oh, Liz, read Twilight. And I like, I believe I had it on my to do list at some point, but I was always just very pessimistic. Uh, that the the returns would be very high. Um, you know, it's strange. I was lined up as like a, as like a, a person of goth interests, if not outward goth fashion, uh, to be interested in in that kind of stuff. But I just never read it. Uh, I have seen like one and a half of the movies, though. I think at some point I've seen all the movies. I've just like blocked them out of my memory, or they all kind of ran together. Uh, but anyway, the vampires of Twilight are not aristocratic. They are profoundly bourgeois. And I caused some controversy on the other day, uh, the other day on Twitter.net by saying that because I believe uh, bourgeois has come to mean in common use rich. Uh, so trying to distinguish between aristocrats and the bourgeoisie for people who imagine that bourgeois just means rich can be a little difficult. Uh, but the bourgeoisie are not aristocrats, of course. They're the capital ownership class. You can easily become a member of the bourgeoisie on your own power uh, or drop out of it. And it's not technically hereditary. It isn't imbued with any particular spiritual resonance as the aristocracy of Europe was. The bourgeoisie are sort of uh, painfully um, uh, logical and uh, material and divorced from these kinds of enchanted powers uh, that ruled the old world. And their tastes are crucially different, right? Aristocrats have high culture tastes. They're like elegant, refined, worldly, usually kind of decadent, hedonistic. The bourgeoisie are very conventional and they're not traditional, I would, I would emphasize, just conventional. And, and they're mainly interested uh, in securing the stability of liberal capitalism because that guarantees their dominance as a class. So their tastes come out in favor of, you know, hard work, stability, nuclear family units and whatnot. They're just totally different animals in the aristocracy. Uh, even if you even if you separate them out by, uh, you know, 
time period and you say, well, you had aristocracy for a certain phase of history and then you move into the dominance of the bourgeois, uh, they're still extraordinarily different, even accounting for those those changes in period. Uh, so, you know, the modern vampire mythos starts gaining steam in the 19th century when the power of traditional aristocrats was on the wane and the power of the bourgeoisie was rapidly growing. So aristocrats were becoming, in some sense, more exotic and mysterious. Whatever the bourgeoisie are, they're not exotic or mysterious. Which makes bourgeois vampires just like a really bizarre innovation in the genre, in my opinion. I mean, they do exist. Like I said, Twilight vampires are basically bourgeois, but they just suck. They suck. They're not scary. They're not erotic. They're like professional managerial class dorks. Like they go to high school. They play baseball. They probably have a minivan. It's just crap. I remember thinking that when I watched the movie. I'm like, how does this vampire dude have any erotic appeal? He's in goddamn high school. He's literally going to high school. I wouldn't have to be a vampire uh, to to drop out of high school, man. I mean, uh, I would drop out of high school if I had a really lame superpower. Like if I could just walk through walls or something, I would be like, well, that's it for me. I'm special enough to skip high school at this point. But these guys are like living in a Seattle suburb or whatever. And some of them like go to work. And I think one's like a doctor and 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 one of them goes to like, yeah, just regular public school. And they're like, oh, all we really want is to be totally conventional and have conventional family units and conventional, you know, sort of clapboard and stone homes in the suburbs. I'm like, what the hell? It's a complete waste of the genre. Uh, you know, you could you could see that entire uh, that entire story being told like without the, the vampire piece. <laughs> um, and, and that's, that's a real disservice to the genre, but I did have to cite them because, uh, because they, they are a, a bit of counter-programming, uh, that, uh, definitely works against the aristocratic vampire mythology. Anyway, it's just crap. Let's move on. Uh, more interesting are proletarian vampires, which you also occasionally see. Uh, for instance, in the television program Supernatural, which I think has been running for like 35 years, uh, the entire supernatural creature universe is proletarianized. Uh, the protagonists are homeless and jobless, uh, but you, you're led to believe they've had sort of like menial jobs in the past and neither have a complete college education. Uh, the creatures they encounter tend to be pretty similar. So the entire thing is very intentionally set in like rural or exurban America or occasionally in the suburbs, but never the cities, uh, which are the domain of the bourgeois. Uh, the overall effect of proletarianizing vampires, in my view, is to make them more sympathetic, right? Instead of the hunters, they're the hunted, precarious and on the verge of extinction. Uh, this is pretty consistent in my view, with a narrative told from the point of view of the hunters. Uh, so not too big of a surprise. I, I think you also see some proletarian vampires in True Blood, uh, which is set in the South. Um, and, and these are all ways of kind of taking uh, the sense in which vampires are marginalized or pushed to the edges of society and thinking about what that's like contemporarily. Uh, so, I mean, they're fascinating in that uh, they are in, in, in vampire mythology at the edge of society and at the uh, periphery of society uh, and also uh, dominant, 
right? Uh, you know, there's a there's this concept uh, that you uh, occasionally get in Roman law, uh, which gets riffed on later on by Agamben, which is homo sacer, uh, the sacred man. Um, and, and it's a person who is, is oddly and, and paradoxically uh, both hallowed and cursed, right? Uh, there's someone uh, of whom little can be said or done. They, they exist on the margins of society. They're not like us, uh, which might make you think, all right, that's a weak and bad person. Um, but at the very same time, uh, they're sort of consecrated to the gods, which makes them kind of privileged and fascinating people. Um, so I think that's kind of how vampire mythology functions in a certain respect. And you can you can see that as a later commentary on aristocrats in a world in which aristocracy doesn't exist in the way that it once did. Uh, as you become distant and removed from aristocracy, uh, it ends up retaining or regaining a lot of its mystique. Uh, and those people become people who are at once um, not like us. They can't live among us or be like us because they're simply different by nature. Uh, and yet people who are uh, dominant in, in certain ways. Uh, and so uh, I think that's a, a big chunk of the vampire mythology. And because we no longer have obvious aristocracy in the way we once did, that kind of person uh, might get construed more strictly as a, as a marginalized person alone uh, and lose the, the sort of complexity of the aristocratic depiction. In that case, uh, you know, sort of assigning them the proletariat makes sense, right? Because there's your, your maximally marginalized person. Uh, and I think that assigning vampire identity to proletarian characters is also a way of sort of commenting on uh, the the ways in which vampires, you know, are hunted. Uh, and, and so, you know, oh, you're supposed to be afraid of this thing and they, you know, they might be dangerous to you. Uh, but nonetheless, they're actually pursued themselves. So it's like an essentially uh, sort of bourgeois sentimental view of the proletariat. Now, none of this is to say there aren't stories where like a vampire is just a vampire. There are a lot of those. I think the far more interesting ones are the ones where vampire mythology is remarking on or reflecting anxieties about class. It's just like a fun thing, in my opinion. Uh, if you ever see media or you're reading books with vampires, you can always think about, you know, what is the relationship here that's actually being described? And how does it let us kind of peek into uh, these subterranean anxieties people are always having about the way that class is, is divvied up in society? I think vampires uh, sometimes speak to a kind of nostalgia for aristocracy that you have uh, in the disenchanted industrial world where everything is sort of uh, logical, measurable, sensible. Nothing's particularly special or mysterious. Everything is sort of burned into one level by the bright light of the Enlightenment. And, and the aristocracy, you know, is completely collapsed. The emperor has no clothes. I think that's a good thing, uh, but I think that a lot of people feel like with the decline of those sort of fairy tale institutions, uh, you lost whatever mystery and uh, mystique was left to governance and replaced it totally with this kind of bourgeois technocratic crap. Uh, and so, I mean, a lot of times nostalgia 
uh, is misdirected and people end up being sentimental over things that were not good when they were here, uh, when what they should really be feeling is dissatisfaction with what they have now. Uh, but I, I think a lot of that goes on. And I've always found that to be a fascinating aspect of vampire media. Uh, and, and if you're, if you're interested in just watching, uh, some good vampire films, uh, or this Halloween, I would recommend Bram Stoker's Dracula. Uh, I don't know if, if, if some of you know, Stoker is actually my maiden name. Uh, people in my family used to say we're related to Bram Stoker. I think that's possible strictly because Dracula is such a badly written book. Um, it's just sort of crazy and all over the place. Uh, and, and that seems to run in the family. Uh, but the movie Bram Stoker's Dracula, it has Gary Oldman, it has Keanu Reeves, it has Winona Ryder. Uh, it has Anthony Hopkins. It has Carrie Elwes. I mean, it's just completely insane and it completely whips ass. Like I, I cannot begin to explain to you how demented and awesome this movie is. I love it. I love showing it to guests. It's just a great conversation piece. It's wild. Uh, I would fully recommend it. Um, the Lost Boys, which is, of course, a classic, your Southern California uh, vampire movie. Really cool. Uh, great musical interlude in the first quarter. Just awesome. Mullets. Uh, just, just, just amazing. Um, Interview with a Vampire. Yeah, that's the that's the filmic version of the Anne Rice uh, novel, which kicked off the whole vampire series that she did. Um, I read that one. I didn't read any of the other ones. Uh, the movie's cool. It had Brad Pitt and Tom Cruise and a very young Kirsten Dunst. It like oh, Antonio Banderas as well. I always forget that. It like really struggles toward the third act, like Interview with the Vampire always seemed to me to be a novel that Anne Rice like wrote really strongly through the first act. And then the second act, she kind of coasted on the fumes of the first act. And then the third act is just kind of weird and absurd. Uh, oh yeah. Christian Slater is in that too. Uh, but you know, it's like, it's a piece of a uh, kitsch, which you might enjoy. Queen of the Damned is a subsequent novel in that series and a subsequent uh, film I would rate it as the unintentional comedy option. It's just bananas. It's like a weird dream you would have about a vampire movie. Um, it, it's sort of early aughts in like a really painful way. It'll take you back to all the fashions of the early aughts, which were really bad and uncool, but like, I guess, looked awesome at the time. Uh, you know, recommend it if you're into uh, funny vampire movies, although you'll be making the humor yourself, right? Like it's not intending, it takes itself completely seriously. So you'll, you'll be laughing at it on your own. If you're not into doing the work of like, uh, translating really bad filmmaking into stuff that is funny, uh, the really good vampire comedy I would recommend is what we do in the shadows. That's the intentional comedy option. Really good. Uh, really funny. I enjoy it. I have it on all the time. Uh, and then Let the Right One In is an awesome Nordic option, kind of trending in the direction of like Nordic noir, a uh, kind of dark and moody film. Uh, all of those uh, good vampire films, if you're interested. Uh, and so, you know, that brings me to the conclusion of my solo cast. Uh, I hope you have enjoyed thinking with me a little bit about what vampires are and what they represent in our culture. Uh, and if not then this is frankly what you get for asking me to do a solo episode. Uh, but nonetheless, thank you for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed. Bye-bye.